So I imagine I'm standing on the surface of Mars. It looks like Earth. I could be in any desolate desert. The rocks are yellowy, orangey colors. The sky is dark above me. The ground below me is very dry and dusty, crumbly underfoot. Deep sand to, to wade through and walk through, but very powdery and fine in places, almost like talcum powder. Today, we are delving into the world of Mars, one of the most explored planets in our solar system. In recent years, it has caused headlines across the globe, from visions of transforming Mars for human life. Well, in the future, I think we will answer the question, are we alone? And we'll learn an enormous amount from that discovery. To the ethical concerns around colonizing other planets. Do we have the right? as humanity to go to Mars with humans and to destroy the life that's there or to damage the environment, change the environment. But why are we so obsessed with Mars? And what, if anything, is to be gained from our Mars rovers, our blueprints to occupy Mars, and so on? I'm Roma Agrawal, and these are the questions I'll be unpacking with mechanical engineer Abby Hutti and physicist and former chief NASA scientist Jim Green. So join us as we explore Mars' hazy horizons and look at how other worlds might come to shape our experience of our own. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, We're just going to start off with both of you introducing yourselves. So Abby, could I start with you? My name's Abby Hutty. I started my career as a mechanical engineer and then moved into systems engineering and have worked on various space missions. I started uh, with SSTL, a company making small satellites in the UK, moved to Airbus Defence and Space, where I worked on a lot of interplanetary missions, Solar Orbiter, ExoMars, which is the European Space Agency's first Mars rover mission, and then Sample Fetch rover. So spent about 15 years in total working on Mars rover missions. And now I work for a startup company looking at lunar rovers and lunar exploration. I love how you just say that. So like, yeah, this is what I do. And it's like, you're designing spacecraft that like robots that go on different planets and the moon. That's so exciting. Um, Jim, could you introduce yourself for our listeners, please? Sure. Jim Green. I worked for NASA for 42 years before I retired this last December. And I held a whole variety of positions, uh, starting out as a scientist, branch chief, division chief, became um, the planetary science division director for 12 years. And then I ended my career as the NASA chief scientist. So been involved in more than a couple dozen missions, which includes everything on Mars that NASA does since 2006. I mean, the five-year-old in me is like screaming and jumping up and down in utter excitement to be speaking to both of you right now. Jim, can you maybe just tell us how you got into the world of space? You know, what what fascinated you as a child and how did you get into it? Well, you know, it really requires inspiration. This is um, something I find when I talk to other scientists, something happens in their life for which they just get so inspired. They they figure out, this is what I want to do. And they um, change their direction and they accelerate towards that object. 
just like planetary science spacecraft fly by Jupiter and get a gravity assist and speed up and change direction. Well, that happened to me. In the uh, 60s, I watched the original Star Trek. Of course, of course. Of course, of course. I uh, became an uh, observer at a telescope at a local observatory. I did astrophotography. I uh, you know, uh, printed my own images and sent them in, and some were published in Sky and Telescope. And so when I went into um, uh, the University of Iowa, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was observe stars, the universe, the solar system. You know, I would continue on the concept of being an astronomer. But what they were doing at the University of Iowa, they were doing that from spacecraft. That's amazing. And Abby, what about you? Could you tell us a little bit about how you became fascinated with space? So for me, it was always about making things. I wanted to create things and build and design. And I just didn't really know what and how to get paid for that. I wanted to be an inventor or an artist or a creator. And so you're not a Trekkie then? <laughs> I mean, I, I have seen Star Trek. My brother, I have an older <laughs> brother and he was deeply into Star Trek. So I saw a lot of Star Trek growing up. But that wasn't my primary starting point. But then I saw while I was doing my GCSEs and I was trying to decide what subjects to study later, I saw on the news an article about Beagle 2, which was going to be a British-led probe to Mars. And I saw Colin Pillinger talking about how British engineers and scientists were designing this probe for Mars. And I thought, wow, if I could be part of a team designing something to go to another planet, that's pretty cool. What do I need to do to do that? And so I looked into it. I found out that engineering, specifically mechanical engineering, was a good path to take to, to work on space missions um, and that there were space missions that I could work on in the UK. And I just kept following the path closer and closer to that direction until I got there. And it's brilliant that you got there. I mean, how exciting. So could you tell us a bit about the different types of developments and, you know, I guess, engineering design that have happened that have allowed us to go and explore other planets? Wow. I mean, that's a big question. I mean, obviously, we need rockets yeah. to get into space in the first place and really quite precise propulsion systems to get us there and an understanding of orbital mechanics because we often use different slingshots or flybys of other planets to help us on our way to, to different planets. We also need really good thermal control because space is very cold. But also if you're in the sun, there's no atmosphere, there's no wind to blow past you to cool you down. So you can get really scorching hot in any area that the sun's directly shining on as well. So you need to be very careful about balancing out those thermal extremes, especially because things like batteries and computer chips that we use tend to be pretty much the same as the ones that we use here on Earth that have to exist at pretty much room temperature or they just stop working. Then we need to understand the environment that is there. So we need to understand whether anything that we're using in terms of the materials on the spacecraft are going to interact with the environment there. You get really odd effects in space, like tin whiskers growing. So you have a, a metal chunk that has any tin inside it and it just starts growing hairs of tin. That is strange. <laughs> and things like that, that unless you've sent something there and you've experienced it, it's very hard to, from first principles, kind of work out what the science is behind that and to predict that that's going to happen. So it's really a kind of lessons learned and um, evolutionary learning kind of thing that you need to, to work on. Some plastics just 
sublimate in space, just instantaneously become gas. Mm. Others don't. So you can't use the ones that become gas, it turns out. And um, <laughs> they don't really have the same function anymore in gaseous form. So yeah, lots no. of different materials technology goes into it as well. That's amazing. Um, Jim, could you touch on maybe some of the engineering that's allowing us to actually look for life specifically on other planets? Well, it turns out just about anything we launch to any planetary system is a completely new and different design because of the environments those planets are in are very different. Mars uh, is a beautiful place to go to. Uh, this is a place where we might find life. Mars was a blue planet full of water early on in its history. And after about perhaps as much as a billion years, it began to lose its ocean. And now it's very dry on the surface and arid, although the, the atmosphere is humid and there's a lot of water still. It's in frozen form, but it's not liquid water. And so you want to be able to develop a series of instruments that make certain observations of certain signatures. And we call those signatures biosignatures as they relate to life. Methane is a biosignature as an example. It's a gas. We measure it in Mars's atmosphere. The problem is, of course, methane can be generated abiotically. In other words, not by biology, but by geology. You know, methane is um, a gas that can be created in the interior of Mars with magma and certain minerals and water. The chemical reactions occur, generate methane, and that leaks through the surface. And in fact, we find methane leaking through the surface from uh, Curiosity. Curiosity is uh, a fabulous rover, one-ton rover that is still going strong, landed in 2012, and it's making measurements of methane on the daily basis. But we don't know that that's biology. It could be biology. Indeed, we could find perhaps uh, signatures of life with other instruments, but we'll have to go below the surface on Mars, and there's some really fabulous ones coming up that'll do that. For exoplanets, for instance, once again, it's all about biosignatures. It's all about developing instruments that tease apart light that we see from these distant objects and try to find out the chemical signatures in these spectra, we call them, and then determine, is it... Uh, Methane, is it um, different types of gases? How much oxygen do we see? How much carbon dioxide? You know, what are some of the important signatures that we want to then interrogate more and learn more about? So we have a whole variety of instruments like that, all the way from in situ, you know, uh, dig up the soil and, and ingest it and tear it apart and look at its mineralogy and to, uh, to looking at interrogating life, looking for biosignatures in the spectrum from other planets. It, there's such a contradiction in scale or contrast in the scale, isn't there, between shooting these huge, very heavy rockets off into space, getting instruments to the planets, and then looking for these little micro kind of particles. And it, it, that's, you know, it's so, so fascinating. Abby, why Mars in particular? Why is so much effort from different countries around the world being focused there? I think it's because Mars is basically our closest analogue in the solar system. So it's a rocky planet. It has an atmosphere. It's much thinner than ours, but it has an atmosphere. We know that in the past it had a denser atmosphere and it had water. 
So in terms of the life that we know here on Earth, it has all of the conditions that we think that life needs or, or that Earth life needs to evolve. Uh, it's also in what we call the Goldilocks zone with respect to the sun. So it's not too hot, not too cold. We think it has enough energy to sustain life forms. It's not so cold that it, it couldn't but it doesn't have so much sun and so much radiation hitting it that it's a really extreme condition. So if there was life elsewhere in our solar system, Mars is one of the primary candidates for that. Some of the, maybe the moons of Jupiter are interesting targets as well, but they're further away and they're um, more challenging maybe to get to the locations in those icy worlds that we think that life might be, whereas on Mars hopefully it would be quite close to the surface. So it makes it the easiest candidate to start looking. Jim, what have we learned from Mars you know, missions? Could you talk us through that? We receive material from Mars all the time through um, meteorites. You know, These are impacts that have occurred on Mars in the past. Of upflowing material goes into space, orbits the sun, and eventually is swept up by the Earth in some cases. We find these small pieces of rock and we interrogate them. The problem, of course, is um, they've sometimes been sitting on Earth for a long period of time. And so we have to tease apart, well, what's from Mars and what, what could have happened here on Earth? How we find them is quite fascinating. We go to Antarctica and we have a series of snowmobiles. We get in those and we drive across a blinding white glacier. And then when we see these dark things that are sitting there, uh, we know that they are meteorites falling from the sky. We then bag them and, and bring them back and then look at them. Uh, typically, they're from the asteroid belt. They're rocky material that um, are building blocks of planets but haven't become a planet. But occasionally we'll find lunar meteorites and Mars meteorites. Now, how we tell that is when we go to Mars, we can measure the atmosphere composition. We can look at the composition of the rocks. We can determine some of the mineralogy. And so when we see trapped atmosphere in these rocks that are meteorites here on Earth, and it has the same composition and percentages of carbon dioxide and argon and nitrogen and oxygen, then we know it's, it's come from Mars. And so that's one of the telltale signs. But indeed, the instruments we have on our rovers are doing a fabulous job really interrogating the planet. And you know, we're finding that what the minerals are, how atoms rearrange themselves in a lattice form as a rock is really fascinating because water interacts with these minerals and, and creates new minerals on top of that. So that also tells us about the history of Mars. Here on Earth, there's over 5,700 minerals that we've cataloged. On Mars, we've cataloged less than 300, but we plan to bring back rock samples and catalog many more minerals. Now, the reason why minerals are so important is um, out of the 5,700 minerals that are here on Earth, about 350 of them are made from life, dead life. And so, indeed, if you bring back rocks uh, and you look at the mineral composition of the rocks and you find certain minerals that were made with dead life, that's the smoking gun that tells us that Mars had life on its surface in its past. 
So there's two options. One is trying to prove somehow that the methane is being produced biologically, and then the other one is potential minerals that have been produced by a living organism. Right. Biosignatures and signatures of dead life in rocks. That's what we see on the surface. But, you know, there may be extant life, in other words, life living today below the surface on Mars. You know, we don't know that for a fact, and that's what we'd like to also find out. Abby, tell me about the Rosalind Franklin. When I saw you last, that's what you were working on. I know you've moved on to different projects now, but tell us a bit about her. So the mission was part of the European Space Agency's ExoMars mission. It was to be the first European Mars rover on the surface of Mars. And it's been delayed a little, but it's still intending to go. I think 2028 is the latest scheduled launch date. So this was a mission directly focusing on finding life on Mars. So we have a whole suite of instruments on board to drill a sample. So there was actually a drill on board which could drill up to two metres below the Martian surface. So really, really deep down into the rock. And that's because we think that the solar radiation and cosmic radiation that's bombarding the surface of the planet could have damaged or destroyed any life that's actually right at the surface. But under two metres of rock, it will be protected and, and we could still find those signatures that we'd be looking for. Then you bring your sample up, you, you look down the drill at the sample and you look for microfossils and things like that. But then you have on board various different spectrometers, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, which I particularly like saying 10 times fast, um, and later desorption <laughs> mass spectrometry. Yeah, you're going to have to tell us, tell our listeners what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just different ways of looking at the rock. So spectrometry is basically shining light and seeing what spectra come off it. But if you want to look at rock, you can either shine a laser at it and see what comes off. Or you can heat it up and see what gases are given off by it. And they're different ways and, and can give you slightly different answers about what's inside that sample. So they're both really good ways of determining the chemical composition of the rocks. And then we have various other things on board that can actually look at the elements at more of an atomic scale. So the actual molecules involved. And we know that if a substance is created, often molecules have both a left and a right-handed version. They're symmetrical. It's the same arrangement of atoms, but you can put them together in two different ways. But if those atoms, those molecules are produced by biology, for example, through the process of respiration, it's more energy efficient for them to be made in one version than the other. So you often find that there are more left-handed or more right-handed versions of the same element if it's come from a biological process, whereas you'd expect roughly equal proportions if it was an abiotic process. So that's another way to, to look for these life signatures. So there are all these different instruments on board ExoMars to, to start looking in real detail at these samples. And the fact that we're collecting the sample from so deep underground is something that hasn't been done yet on Mars. So that was another really good development that it had. My next big question, I guess, is the why. Like, why is it interesting to study Mars? Why do we want to look for life on Mars? Why do we want to think about humans on Mars? Are we alone in the universe is clearly one of humanity's oldest questions. So that's something that just from a, a very basic primordial curiosity point of view, I think a lot of people are motivated by. But if we do know that there 
is life on Mars that has ethical implications for us? We're not alone in the universe. Do we have the right as humanity to go to Mars with humans and to destroy the life that's there or to damage the environment, change the environment? Should we be thinking about protecting the life that's there if it's still alive? from human life. If we go and take all of our bacteria and, and viruses with us, could it kill off Martian life in the same way that when settlers colonised America, they took lots of novel diseases with them and a lot of the indigenous populations were killed off by that. So we need to learn these lessons from the past. Be cautious about how we approach these kind of things. But also, whilst this might sound far-fetched, could Martian life be dangerous to Earth life? So if we send humans to Mars, do we need to be protecting them from any Mars bacteria, Mars viruses that could still exist or, or have latent life that could infect them? If we bring samples back from Mars, do we need to worry about these things? So there's all of these implications of finding life on Mars. So it's a really important question to answer before we send humans there. And are we ultimately trying to learn more about ourselves, do you think, with all of this exploration? Definitely. I think it's one of the things that we can hope to understand better. Because looking at our planet and looking at what's happened over time on our planet is one thing. But having a, a similar but different planet and being able to look at models of changing different factors within those equations and what implications those have help us to understand it much better. So understanding that Venus has this runaway greenhouse gas effect and understanding that it's hotter and that it's um, got a denser atmosphere and all of those things help us to understand implications of any changes within our system for the Earth. And likewise for Mars, if Mars had large oceans in the past, it had denser atmospheres in the past, but now it's lost those things, we can understand what risk factors we have here on Earth for those things happening here. So definitely one of the big advantages that we have of looking outside of the Earth is to be able to look back at the Earth with renewed vision almost and, and a better understanding of what's going on right here. And Jim, do you think those kinds of findings would be compelling and convince people to change behaviours and so on? I'm thinking, you know, we've seen there's resistance to the idea of the climate crisis and humans' impact on the planet. So I'm just trying to kind of reconcile all of this knowledge and data and learning that we're trying to get from other planets and how that could actually be then applied to us here. Well, it turns out studying these planets and understanding how they've evolved really has affected how we look at our planet. You may recall that we had a problem with our ozone. Ozone is a very important layer. It's about 20 kilometers up. It's made up of um, oxygen. The molecule is three oxygens that are connected together, and they love to eat up ultraviolet light from the sun. Well, the sun kicks out a lot of ultraviolet light. The ozone's very important in absorbing it. Ultraviolet light, if it reaches the surface of the earth, uh, causes skin cancer, Plants have a very difficult time living and growing in, in ultraviolet light. They die off quickly, and it has an enormous effect on our food cycle. It kills the very bottom level a part of our food cycle, which are the phytoplankton in the ocean. They don't survive well under intense ultraviolet light. And so um, when we found that our ozone was being destroyed, 
the first thing that happened is planetary scientists say, well, we know because we see chlorine-destroying ozone on Venus. And so that caught the attention of other scientists that then recognized its uh, CFCs, chlorofluorocarbon, for which the chlorine in, in a CFC is destroying the ozone. So we immediately um, uh, came together internationally and started banning CFCs, and the ozone is starting to close. So, you know, what's happened on these planets can happen on Earth. Not only Venus, but also Mars. You know, uh, Mars lost its magnetic field billions of years ago, and we have spacecraft orbiting Mars now, and, and they're really understanding how the solar wind strips out the oxygen from the atmosphere. And once you strip out the oxygen, which was originally part of H2O, really originally part of water that evaporated, then you don't get it back. And so that's how it started losing its water content is from its um, interaction with the solar wind without a magnetic field. Well, the Earth will go through a transition for which it will lose its magnetic field for a period of time as the pole begins to flip. And so we know exactly what will happen because of the solar wind atmospheric interaction we measure at Mars will be the same as what will happen here on Earth. So the study of comparative planetology is really so important. We're really quite lucky to have Venus and Mars bookend us, so to speak, in our solar system, that we can really study them and recognize they're at different places in their evolution uh, relative to the Earth. And then that helps us understand the fate of our planet. So we've talked about, I guess, the ethics in terms of contamination and, and so on with exploring these other planets. And we've talked about, I think, Mars and Venus in particular as being very educational to us on Earth. And Abby, I, I was kind of struck as well by the financial, I guess, ethics of it, because we spend so much money. These missions are extraordinarily expensive. They take a really long time. How do we then sort of talk ourselves or convince ourselves that spending money to go explore much further reaches, Jupiter, the moons of Jupiter and so on, is the right thing to do? I think one of the, the things to remember is, yes, it is a large sum of money, but there's an awful lot of people contributing to it. We're talking about these missions, but we're talking about these missions for the whole of the United States uh, worth of taxpayers' budget or the whole of the European Union's taxpayers' budgets. So the actual amount per capita that we're spending is very low. And these are really drivers to innovation. Having to design something for a very different environment very different purpose than we have here just in day-to-day -day terrestrial applications forces us to innovate. It forces us to develop new technologies, forces us to develop new materials. And then it's not until after the fact that we actually find that those new developments have purposes, have functions that we could use them for here on Earth. One of the big ones that's understood by a lot of people is Teflon was developed for the space industry. And we now have used that in nonstick frying pans for years. We know that Velcro was created to help astronauts and we use that all over the place now. Technology developments like for Rosalind Franklin, we were developing autonomous navigation because the distance to Mars is so great that it actually takes a really long time for the signals to travel between Earth and Mars. And anyway, we, we don't have direct communication all of the time. It depends on where the orbiters are around the planet. So we wanted the robot to be able to make a lot of its own decisions about where to drive and how to drive by itself. 
So we were developing this autonomous navigation that scans the terrain in front of it. It builds up a 3D elevation map of what it can see. It works out which areas are hazardous to us and which are safe, and categorizes them by risk. It plans a path, balancing the appropriate level of risk with the optimal path towards its destination. And then it travels there by itself. We can use that kind of autonomous navigation system here on Earth. So in disaster areas, we could send little robots in that could climb over the rubble and pick out a safe path, go to a destination to carry aid where we couldn't necessarily send vehicles or send people with vehicles because of the risks to their own safety or because of the the terrain not being passable to these particular vehicles. We can have potentially bomb diffusal robots that would use the same kind of technology and can travel through any kind of terrain. So there's all kinds of different things, spin backs from the technology that we develop that you don't think of when you first start developing it. You just know that you need to develop something new. And then when you have something new, you can think about all the different ways you can apply it. Abby, what are your hopes for the future of planetary and Mars exploration? Well, obviously, I hope that ExoMars will get there. Um, and will be successful yeah. <laughs> in its mission and dig under the surface, do all of the science that it was designed to do. That will be a very exciting day for me. I hope that we continue in the same vein, exploring not just Mars, but other places as well. There's loads of different environments, loads of different places to go. Um, just because we've been to the equator doesn't mean that we know what the polar ice caps are like. Just because we've been to the polar ice caps doesn't mean that we know what the lava tubes are like. Just because we've been to the lava tubes doesn't mean that we know what the subsurface is like. So there's still so much more to, to learn and to discover in so many different places and environments to go, even just on Mars. The joy of discovery. Jim, what about you? What, what do you hope will happen in the future? Well, in the future, I think we will answer the question, are we alone? And uh, although we haven't found life beyond Earth, I think it's inevitable that we will. And we'll learn an enormous amount uh, from, from that discovery in ways that we can hardly fathom at the moment. Uh, I think we're at a place where we need to start exploring our solar system. We're lucky to have as many planets as we do. We need to be able to live and work on planetary surfaces like the moon, we need to go to Mars and live and work, and really utilize those planets and objects in new and different ways. There's resources there that we'll need. For instance, platinum group metals are being mined here on the Earth in the next 50 to 250 years, most of those will be all mined out. And the only place to get them is to go get them. And that is on the moon and on Mars and even out into the asteroid belt. So if this species is going to survive, we've got to continue on understanding and utilizing space in many of these different ways. And um, it's also, to me, extremely important because we have lived up to the original agreement in the Outer Space Treaty of 1966, for which uh, space is being used as a peaceful purpose area for which many countries are beginning to live and work together in space, for which here on Earth they may not cooperate very well, may even have conflicts, major conflicts. But in space, you know, it, it's a new environment where we have to rely on each other. And I think um, that element is extremely important. It's very unifying. 
And we need to continue on in that area. Find common ground for our different cultures and our different countries with different approaches and opinions and governments, a place where we can work together. And space right now is that place. Thank you so much, Abby and Jim, for joining me from different parts of the world. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was hosted by me, Roma Agrawal, and featured Abby Hutti and Jim Green. It was produced by Tess Davidson. Next episode is coming up in a fortnight. Mm-hmm.